enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. We welcome you to join us in a study of God's Word today. Today we're going to close out our series of being a people of grace and learning how to live as disciples of grace. Uh, This series has been one where we have focused and honed in on uh, what it means for God to be gracious to us, to love us, to care for us, and how we reciprocate and live into that grace. And we will focus heavily on, uh, on that again this morning. Uh, I want to read for you today from Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. And this passage of Scripture takes place right after uh, two of the apostles are released from court. They have been uh, kind of, uh, they have been questioned. They have been uh, trying to find out what's going on, what they are doing, why people are still following them, the uh, disciples of Jesus after Jesus had been dealt with. And what they find is that... Uh, Their conviction and their testimony about who God is and what He's done in Jesus Christ, there's merit to it. But they can't deal with it. So they tell them, you be quiet, don't say anything. I don't want to hear any more of this Jesus nonsense or resurrection stuff. Just go back home. And so we pick up there as they go back home. Verse 23, after they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by your Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, take look at their threats. Grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Peter and John have come back from the leaders of their religion being told to be quiet. Don't speak about the resurrection of Jesus. I think it's worth saying why the resurrection of Jesus might be something that they're afraid of. Uh, We would think, I mean, we've celebrated the resurrection for so long. What's wrong with the resurrection of Jesus? After all, if, if Jesus is raised from the dead, that means there's life after death, right? That means that there's hope. That means there's a future. We should be celebrating any kind of resurrection. You think even among the leaders there that the resurrection would be something that they could say, okay, it's happened, it's finally here, something they could be excited about. But the resurrection of Jesus also means some pretty unsettling things as well, particularly for the chief priests and the leaders. It means... If God's grace is going to raise up from the dead Jesus, it means God is pleased to dwell among and in Jesus and those whom he dwelled and lived and walked among. 
It means God is pleased to dwell among the crucified, among the masses, among the poor, among the very one who became sin on our behalf. But that's not how they like to think about God. Indeed, it's not always the way we want to think about God either. When we think about God, it's very tempting to say we just want to think about God as the one who's in charge of everything, the one who's powerful, the one who's watching over, and He is the one who everything that happens is because God wants it to happen. We have terms that we often use to describe God. Omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He sees everything. He's with us. He can do anything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows our past. He knows our present. He knows what's going to happen later on. He, this is the very categories of God. When we talk about God, we talk of then all-encompassing power. And we like to think if anything negative or bad happens, that there has to be a reason for it. Or, or, even, or, or perhaps that God intended it in some way. Because that is what it would mean for God to be all-powerful. That everything happens under, her, under His purview. In this way, on the one hand, we can kind of absolve ourselves of some responsibilities. Because we can say, oh, well, God wanted something to happen this way. And, and, or at least on the other hand, we can at least make sure God stays on his throne. He keeps his power. Nothing happens without his say-so. And there are indeed some religious traditions that are very clear about that articulation of God. Indeed, I think this is the, precisely the struggle we find in Scripture a lot of times as well. Struggling to find out, did God mean for that to happen? Does God want that to happen? Did God mean for something like that to happen? It's the argument that happens in the book of Job, where Job's friends are saying to Job, well, God obviously uh, wanted this to happen because you did something wrong. And Job's, Job's saying, no, no, not, I didn't do what you're accusing me of doing. And then wrestling with how could something bad happen to someone so righteous if God wasn't punishing you, if God didn't want it to happen. Even in the writing uh, of Exodus, in the story of how they are delivered from Egypt, uh, Moses keeps going back to Pharaoh and saying, hey, here's a miracle. God wants you to let our people go. Will you let them go? He says, yeah, you can go. And then the writer will tell us, oh, but then Pharaoh hardened his heart and he didn't let them go and he changed his mind. And then the next day, Moses will go back, here's another miracle. And it's almost as if the author's like, wait a minute, Pharaoh can't harden his heart because then Pharaoh's greater than God's will. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and, uh, and, and, he, didn't let, and he changed his mind again and didn't let them go. And then the next day, uh, he, comes, he comes back, does another miracle. And it's almost as if, as if the author's like, wait a minute, God doesn't harden hearts. Pharaoh hardened his heart when he changed his mind this time. He goes back and forth with who's hardening Pharaoh's heart. But there's this idea of, okay, this struggle that happens. Did God want this thing to happen? Did God intend for what, that which was bad to happen or not? And even in, in the scriptures, there's back and forth trying to figure out what is God doing here. To think of God as all-powerful is, is what we want to do, but how do we do that in relationship to the struggles the church faces? And in fact, in the Old Testament, they realized time and again, as much as we might be tempted to think of God as the one who is situated in power, that he isn't defined by the powers and the successes of this world. He chose a people while they were still enslaved. He rescued them when they were exiled. And now this tempts us to think that perhaps God has preferential treatment for a particular group of people. 
Even though the prophets had warned Israel before they ever went into exile not to presume their status as a preferred people would give them any kind of special treatment, the leaders of the days of the early church and of Jesus have forgotten this. And they seem to think, hey, we're in a place of power now. We're in a place of prestige now. Yeah, yeah, the Romans are kind of invaded us, but they've let us govern. That's a blessing in itself. So God must have preordained this. God must have said this is how it's going to be. They feel like they have an elevated status to say what God's will is and what God is going to do. They're in a place of power, prestige, and influence. So it must mean God is pleased with their actions, right? Because everything that we have that's good comes from God, and so God has to be pleased if we've gotten good things or we've gotten to a place of prominence, as if no one ungodly has ever been in a place of prominence before. This is the mindset But, in light of the resurrection, it changes all this. In particular, the resurrection of a Galilean peasant who came from nowhere, a town that barely makes it on the map. He didn't climb the ranks, and he never amounted to anything other than getting a bunch of other peasants to follow him around the countryside. He ends up dying a Roman criminal, hanging from a cross. And the scriptures are clear that anyone who hangs from a tree or or from that which comes from the tree is, is accounted as cursed before God. Because obviously, if they were blessed of God, God would have sent hordes of angels down to rescue him. This is the picture they have of Jesus. But if there is a resurrection, if this is more than just whether or not they agree with whether or not a resurrection could take place, but more so what the resurrection says about God if God raises Jesus from the dead. If God raises this one up, then it means our understanding of who God is has to change. God is no longer defined by power and might and status. It means God is no longer dwelling among the elites who are running the country, the power brokers of the temple, It means God is pleased to dwell outside that place, outside of even the Holy of Holies, the place where curiously on the day of Jesus' death, the curtain was torn in two. It means if this Jesus is indeed the Son of God, if God is pleased to dwell in this one and raise Him from the dead, it means God is pleased to dwell among the broken, the forsaken, and the cursed masses of this world. It means when the world enacts its power against whatever threatens it, that God says, this need not be. Indeed, it must not be. That's not my will for this world. For the resurrection of Jesus is the validating of his entire life and situating God's favor, God's love, indeed his grace in that one. That one who should be, by, no, by all accounts, nobody. This is why we say that nobody can come to the Father except through the Son. Because it's through the Son, through Jesus Christ, by whom the Father has proven to dwell when He raises Him from the dead. And it's in this one, as the crucified one, who stare, still bears the marks of one who is wounded for us, still broken and bleeding as the disciple Thomas could attest when he reached out his hands and he felt that. Which is to say the presence of the Holy One 
is pleased to dwell among the one who is still considered cursed by every blood tradition written in the Old Testament. He still bears the wounds of death. And if that's the case, if God is pleased with that one, it means there's no longer insiders and outsiders for God's grace. It means there's no longer privileged places and privileged peoples. Because if this is where God resides, and the only privilege, if there is any, is among the kind that Jesus has purposely lived among. The poor, the destitute, the marginalized, those who have nothing. And precisely because God's grace is there, we learn we have nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. We are all saved purely by grace. And that doesn't bode well for the future of a church or the future of a nation that's run by a church. It does not bode well for anyone or any group who's trying to force a style of living on a certain populace because all authority to do so by means of manipulation, such as you'll do this or else God's going to do this to you. You better live this way or else God's going to get you. All of that is proven false and as the worst of lies in the face of the resurrection because we find that God's grace goes precisely out to those people. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we are saved by grace and God is pleased to dwell with you. With you. How you are who you are, that God says you are important and you are valuable exactly for who you are without any other conditions, God's grace goes to you. This is what the gathered people in Acts believe and are willing to take to the world. And it unsettles that world because it strips them of their authority. If people start believing in in themselves, more than they ought, then they're going to have greater demands and greater expectations. They might want a larger chunk of change held by the most powerful people. Or, or they might start not feeling threatened when powers acted against them. Because who's afraid of death if they believe in the resurrection? And so when they hear about this, they call John and Peter together to try to get them to stop. By all means, stop. We can't have this kind of hope in our world. And when they come back to the church and back to the apostles and say, this is what they're afraid of, the first thing they do is they go to prayer. As disciples who have encountered God's grace, when we are faced with whatever might be wrong in this world, when we are faced with whatever temptation or trial might come our way, the first thing to do always is to go to a place of prayer. It's to go to a place saying, okay, Lord, I need your help in this because we don't want to succumb to the ways of doing things that the world does, that all of a sudden we just start in this big old tug of war. But to go to a place of prayer and say, Lord, what are you going to do and how are you going to help me to be faithful in the midst of the trials, temptations, and tribulations that come my way? Our call is first and foremost to go to prayer. And so that's what they do. They raise their voices to God and they say, Sovereign Lord, you've made the earth. You can handle this. Sovereign Lord, creator of earth and sea and everything in it, you can handle this. And so the the way they pray through what this is is by quoting the second psalm. 
And I want to read that for you for a moment. The second psalm is a psalm of David. David uh, writes this psalm, and it's about the enemies around him. It's just a few verses. I'll share this with you. You'll recognize the first two verses is what's in Acts. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds asunder, cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with trembling. Kiss his feet or he will be angry and you will perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled and happier are all those who take refuge in him. That psalm is not the most... Uh, peaceful psalm. It's a psalm of warning. David wrote this song recognizing God had called him to to lead this nation. God had said, you are going to be great and you're going to do great things for the people of God, but the nations that are surrounding against you, I'm going to take care of. Indeed, you can trust that because they have acted against you and my plan, I'm going to act against them. And the people of God gathered in Acts, remember this psalm, remember having prayed this before, sung this before, and they hear that there are those who are a part of their church, their faith, those who were their leaders before Jesus came, are now intimidated and using whatever power they can to silence and to stop the moving forth of the gospel and the sharing of God's grace, that God's grace wants to reach out to exactly where you are. And that, that scene in the resurrection, and the church is intimidated by that. And their prayer is, God, you've made the earth. You can handle this. In fact, you dealt with the enemies of David. You can deal with this. What a comparison that the church is equating the nation surrounding David with the chief priests and the elders of the church. That they are saying that God's people have moved so far away and their interest of creating and keeping their own power, that they have become the enemies of God's plan. Wouldn't that be a new perspective for us the next time we're reading the Old Testament in our devotions, when we're at home? Instead of praying for God to, I don't know, expand our territory or defeat the forces that move against us, what if part of our prayer was, Lord, am I that force? <laughs> Lord, have I, have I acted in ways that, that put me against where your Holy Spirit wants to move? Have my judgments about what is right and holy caused me to be closed off about grace as these people are? Could I be the outside force coming against where your Holy Spirit is moving and guiding people? That's the comparison made in the book of Acts. And then they say, for indeed... These powers killed Jesus. In the face of this, they pray. And they ask that in the, in the face of these threats, what they ask of the Lord is, help us now to speak your word 
with all boldness that we would be able to be so uh, captured by the grace of God that the truth of what you have done, the truth of your grace and who you want to be in this world will still be shared even when people say, now's not the time to talk about God. Now's not the time that we would be equipped to say, I know God has made a difference and God has a plan and a purpose for just this moment and to speak it with boldness. And then they say, in the face of that which has come against them, they say, Lord, now would you stretch out your hand? It says in Acts chapter 4, stretch out your hand and heal them. Which is a different... After reading Psalm 2, that is not what I expected. Come after stretch out your hand. (laughs) Stretch out your hand, I would expect to be a strike down. I would have been a put them in their place, put them on their knees, do whatever you have to do. Lord, in your great power, take care of things. But their prayer is, God, stretch out your hand to heal. And I think that's important because sometimes we need to recognize that even where There are people around us who are exercising power and influence in manipulative ways that they too are a broken people. They too are acting out in ways that are contrary to what God has desired because of their own brokenness. And God's plan and God's hope in Jesus Christ is to redeem and heal them as well. And so their prayer is, Lord, stretch out your hand and now heal and restore and indeed make a change not just in us but in those coming against us. And so they'll say he performed signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. In other words, they performed and prayed that they would continue to see signs and wonders through the one who was broken for us in the name of Jesus. When we say things like Jesus was broken for us and for our transgressions, is to say that uh, he lived obediently into the grace of God, that no matter what would happen, that he would be faithful to where God's grace wanted to go, that the grace of God would live in him and thus be shared with us. When we hear, when we come to the table, this is the Lord's body which is broken for you. We say that, we, we, we take that in in order to that God's grace would meet us exactly where we are with whatever sins or trials or or struggles that we have, exactly where we need Him, in our failures, in our sickness, in our doubts, in our weakness. In that brokenness, God meets us. And what we find in the resurrection of Jesus is He's pleased to dwell with us exactly there. And it's after that prayer that Acts chapter 4 says they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are filled with the power of God to speak boldly. If we are willing to accept God into every part of our life, if we're willing to invite Him into every part of our life, we will find indeed that the Holy Spirit will move, will fill us, as we sang, will shape us, will mold us, And the great temptation, I think, after initially receiving God's changing power is to become a little bit like the chief priest. It's what I I see sometimes in the lives of Christians. I think one of the reasons why I have my eyes so attuned to it is because it was a struggle in my own life when I first became a Christian. When I first became a Christian and started to think, okay, I believe in God and 
well, if there's a God, I better follow what he says or else. <laughs> uh, I started to wonder, why haven't others made the same decisions I have? Why, have, why aren't other people doing the same things that I have, making the same sacrifice or, or, or making the same decisions? And it became very easy for me to become judgmental. It became very easy for me to try to become a defendant of God, as if God needed my help after these thousands of years. <laughs> and uh, it was an eye-opening moment when God asked me uh, for my heart and not just for my conviction in my head that I would love those whom God loves and love those who haven't yet made decisions and even love those who have now become like the way I was, a little judgmental, (laughs) a little too critiquing of people. But this is why we need each other in discipleship, to support each other through the hard times so we don't succumb to the easy ways of this world that just says there's something wrong with you and you better straight, uh, shape up or else God. Or I have, why haven't you seen that this is the right action for you? It was the right action for me. And the disciples decide because they need each other in these hard times to pray together. Let us pray together. And they prayed for healing, not destruction. They prayed for restoration and not judgment. And so us as the people of God called to be his disciples, called to be people of grace, who've encountered Jesus' saving power, the one who died for us but then was raised for us, we find that God's grace goes where sometimes we are most surprised, where it is needed most, and we find we are invited to share grace precisely for healing in those areas as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the scriptures that remind us that it is okay within the church to struggle together to find out how to live faithfully in this world. That in the book of Acts, what we find indeed is a church who's going to struggle to figure out how do we live faithfully into this grace and what this means. And Heavenly Father, help us to live faithfully into the grace that you have provided for us that we look upon our world and we look upon those around us with love and grace and encouragement. A grace that doesn't sweep things under the rug, a grace that doesn't just let people be, but a grace that with conviction says God has a plan and a future and God loves you precisely for who you are and how you are today. A grace that calls one another to live more and more faithfully each and every day because God has come alongside of us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gospel. Thank you for this message from Jesus Christ, that we, precisely where we are, are loved and cherished, and one for whom Jesus died. Thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit that is poured out upon a church who's just seeking to find ways to be faithful to you. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit continue to move and act in our lives today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. Our website also includes instructions for subscribing to our podcast so you can have a message delivered to you weekly. 
May God bless you abundantly as you serve Him today.